A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to Cimmerillion Stories, where the Lorehounds, your guides to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm David. I'm John, and this is our podcast for Ina Lindeley, the first story of the Silmarillion. In this episode, we'll be talking about our overall thoughts on the story before talking about Tolkien's relationship with music. After that, we'll do a breakdown of themes, characters, and events of the Ina Lindeley. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to lotr at thelorehounds.com. And we'll get to those questions on the next episode. Episodes will be released one per month, toward the end of the month. If you're enjoying our coverage of The Silmarillion, or any of the shows that we're covering, and you'd like to support us directly, head over to patreon.com slash thelorehounds and subscribe today for early and ad-free access to every episode. Of course, you can always find all of our ad-supported episodes on our public feed, just search for Lorehounds in your podcast application of choice. One more quick ask. If you have a minute, please take a moment and rate and review the podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever you use. Uh, ratings and reviews really do help people find the podcast in the rankings, and that helps us make more podcasts. We're four episodes into The White Lotus over on HBO, and we're about to wrap up and or on Disney+. Plus. Plus? Plus. Um... And we've got Sil Silmarillion stories uh, rolling and a few other projects in the pipeline. So stick around. Tales of the Jedi, anyone? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. We got everything. David, what a delight it is to hear that Second Age theme just blasting in everybody's <laughs> earphones once again. The, the song that started it all. That's a banger tune. This was, this was Lorehound's Ground Zero. It was. It was. And now we're coming all the way back around to the very beginning. It's true. So we've taken a step back from the second age. People were asking, you know, when are you going to cover the first age? And, you know, it would have been a little lame to just call it the first age podcast. We've been there. We've done that. We've done the second age. So here we are doing Silmarillion stories. And let's just talk quick about what we're doing here. Sounds good. We're not doing a super deep, every single line is going to be analyzed reading. There are plenty of other sources for that. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to do a recap of the story like we do a recap of a TV episode, and we're going to talk about background on Tolkien's life like we did with the Second Age, plus we're going to identify themes and maybe major takeaways from it. Yeah, that sounds good. And for somebody like me who's not a big book reader, uh, or at least of this particular uh, genre and um, this deeper, deeper lore stuff, I think it'll be really helpful because we're going to be picking apart the key stories and the really foundational elements that will help us enjoy when Rings of Power comes back. And so uh, I think that's the, the power of this is while there's, there are tons of other cool podcasts that do line by line readings, um, you know, we're not going to do that. We're, we're kind of halfway between. So people like me who really enjoy the material but are a little intimidated by the books we can break it down into more consumable sizes. Exactly. So I've read The Silmarillion. I think this is my fourth, fifth <laughs> time because I've, I've, I think I've read it straight through like three times. Wow. But going back and looking at things, I've done that 
tons of times, especially doing this podcast. So, right. David, this is your first time reading the Ina Lindelay. And what did you think? Uh, yeah, I've got my fresh copy of the Silmarillion stories that I bought from my local friendly bookstore down the street. And uh, I was pretty surprised at how easy that section was to read. It was pretty straightforward. I think some of the things that I'm most interested in are Melkor and like what's behind Melkor and like the kinds of drivers that push him to to do the things that that he does. And so, yeah, I guess I was surprised at the accessibility of it. The language isn't that baroque or sort of confusing. And um, I was able to kind of let go of my, oh my God, I got to slog through this stuff because I know that I've got you on the other side of me here to walk me through it and for us to contextualize it and talk about it and obviously get listener feedback and have this ongoing conversation. So yeah, I I think I took the mindset that we're going to be digesting this stuff together. That's kind of a gross metaphor. Um, the, we're going to be working <laughs> we're like on like a cow. Together. We have yeah, four stomachs. Exactly. And we, yeah. Okay. That's just, this, this podcast just went in weird places. But anyway, um, knowing that, yeah, we're going to be working on it collectively and that we're chunking it up into these uh, bite-sized pieces, I was able to let go a lot of my of my concerns and just enjoy the story and enjoy this really intricate and complex world that Tolkien was building. I mean, like from the very, you know, scratch here at the very beginning of things. Right. Very cool. I'm really excited for you to come on this journey. I know we've already had chatter in the Discord about this uh, this podcast yep. uh, and on the Reddit. So I'm really excited to get more people on board. I love seeing people discover this world. Um, we're actually going to have a thread up. By the time this comes out, there will be a thread up in the Discord where you can discuss the specific chapters and just the specific chapters. It'll be siloed for just this section. So uh, if you want to join us on that, again, head over to baldmove.com or look at the link in the show notes below and you can chat with us there in real time. So David, why don't we get into a little bit of Tolkien's life? The same way we did back when we were doing the preseason coverage in Rings of Power, we're going to talk about a little segment of his being. Sounds good. So the topic that I picked for this episode was Tolkien and music, uh -huh. because I think it's a really interesting way to set the stage for the Ainulin delay. Right. So this is clearly a very biblical creation story, right? Mm -hmm. But what makes it so unique is that Tolkien framed this as the creator god, Eru, yeah. conducting a symphony, using music as a tool of creation, as the blueprint of creation. And one has to ask themselves when they read that, how did Tolkien get to this? I mean, mm -hmm. like, why did he choose music as the vehicle of creation? It makes sense from a uh, metaphorical standpoint, like, you know, a conductor and different instruments. And so I think after the fact, I can see that. But yeah, I guess if you're just coming, I mean, if you're the the creator and you're, you're putting something together, yeah, why music? What's, what is the initial inspiration that you have to construct the world this way? So the root of it, first of all, is that the Tolkien family prior to J.R.R. Uh -huh. was a family of piano makers. Really? I mean, his father, I don't think, was in the business either. The, the business basically failed. Okay. Um, but yeah, they were historically piano makers. Interesting. I don't think we covered and that in the second age, so that's new information for me. No, yeah, no, this is brand new. So Tolkien, though, had no talent in music at all. Okay. <laughs> he said he was never any good at it. He was amazed by it and he loved it. Uh -huh. uh, I have this quote from letter 142. I love music, but I have no aptitude for it, aptitude for it. And the efforts spent on trying to teach me the fiddle in youth have left me only with a feeling of awe in the presence of fiddlers. Mm. Another one from letter 268. I have little musical knowledge. Though I come of a musical family, owing to defects of education and opportunity as an orphan, such music as was in me was submerged until I married a musician or transformed into linguistic terms. So there you have it. Is Tolkien loved music. It was around him as a small child, and it was around him as a married man because his wife Edith was a pianist. Uh, but but he really just had no talent in it. I think it's interesting that um, I mean, as we we talked about Tolkien's early life and the sort of uh, house that he and Edith both were boarded at, and how they became friends. But isn't that kind of an interesting little twist of fate? That not only were they sort of 
compatible in a social sense. You know, that the, they they had similar temperance and and senses of humor, but that she was a musician, something that he adored music, and he could find that in her. It's just a, it's really touching. It's really sweet. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've talked about Tolkien's love of Edith in the Second Age podcast. I'm sure we'll get to that again, especially when we get to the Baron and Luthien chapter. But mm-hmm. for now, just keep in mind, he loved his wife. She played some good music. Uh, and, and this was the tool that he chose to use in this right. story. Yeah, that's very cool. All right, so why don't we get into some overall themes? Sounds good. So in the beginning of most Silmarillion copies, probably in yours too, David, that uh-huh. you just got, is letter 131. And again, these letters are written by J.R.R. Tolkien. There's a whole collection of them compiled by Humphrey Carpenter. If anybody wants to read them for themselves, I highly recommend it. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to be pulling from his letters during these podcasts to give you some of the idea. So letter 131 was the letter where Tolkien was trying to sell the Silmarillion to his publisher. Mm -hmm. Unwin, if I remember right correctly. Right. I think it was Stanley Unwin. Yeah. And so he outlines the entire plot of the Silmarillion in this letter. Mm -hmm. And it's a really great way to frame what he was trying to do. So I'm just going to read the part where he's talking about what he was doing in creation. Okay. The cycles begin with a cosmogonical myth. The music of the Ainur, God and the Valar, or powers, Englished as gods, are revealed. These latter are, as we should say, angelic powers whose function is to exercise delegated authority in their spheres of rule and government, not creation, making or remaking. They are divine, that is, were originally outside and existed before the making of the world. Their power and wisdom is derived from their knowledge of the cosmogonical drama, which they perceived first as a drama, that is, as in a fashion we perceive a story composed by someone else and later as a reality. On the side of mere narrative device, this is, of course, meant to provide beings of the same order of beauty, power, and majesty as the gods of higher mythology, which can yet be accepted, well, shall we say baldly, by a mind that believes in the blessed trinity. So, David, you can see here that he's framing this as these are agents of God. Mm-hmm. These are not God himself. You know, he's he's equi- he's both equating them to like the Greek pantheon and saying they are not gods, though. Right. And I think that's interesting from what we've talked about before in the whole sub-creator thing, like being a uh, junior creator, having your junior creator badge. And then the dilemma that I know he struggled with in terms of being too authoritative in that. So there's a tension there. And I think maybe we see a little tension there with Melkor as well, who wants to create and, and dominate and, and rule things. Um, and Is so Melkor that- a self-insert? Uh, <laughs> no, he's not. He's not. But I, I, I just think it's funny to think of it that way. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So this is interesting that that we're kind of peering into um, Tolkien's psychology as he's talking about how he wants to construct his world. Exactly. I'm glad you brought up subcreators because I have one more quote, and then I promise no more long quotes. Okay. So in draft letter 212, he says, the Ainur took part in the making of the world as subcreators in various degrees after this fashion. They interpreted according to their powers and completed in detail the design propounded to them by the One. This was propounded first in musical or abstract form and then in an historical version. Vision. In the first interpretation, the vast music of the Ainur, Melkor introduced alterations, not interpretations of the mind of the One, and great discord arose. The one then presented this music, according to uh, including the apparent co- discords, as a visible history. So see how he's playing with that as sub-creator versus creator, mm-hmm. where he's contrasting interpretation with alteration. So it is okay to interpret God and interpret God's plan, but it's not okay to alter God's plan. It's, <laughs> it's interesting because when you know, we talk a lot about People like uh, Payne and McKay, you know, the showrunners for Lord of the Rings, and we talk about Tom Shippey and this whole question of, are you um, true to the source and are changes necessary because of medium? 
and there is interpretation there. So when does this bleed over into alteration? And then you're creating something different, right? It's not, um, you're not playing a variation on a theme. You're, you're I don't want to say plagiarizing, because that's, that's just straight copying. But you're creating something that isn't the source? Hmm, that's a, this is an interesting thought. Something that's unlicensed, I suppose. Something yeah, that a... <laughs> the creator would not have sanctioned. Right. But then when do you have the freedom to create what you want to create, whether you're inspired by the original or not? Hmm, I don't well, know. I think Tolkien would have said, you know, all myths have truth in them. Uh-huh. You're, you as the artist are supposed to divine the truths of God's creation mm. rather than creating a different thing. Uh, you're a sub-creator, not a creator. And again, just to be clear, these are not our religious beliefs here. This is us trying to analyze Tolkien's mind. Right. Yeah, yeah. But speaking of the divine, I think that divine plan is a big part of this Aina because the Aina basically shows us the whole plan for the history of creation mm-hmm. up until the end of time. And that is something that is really fascinating when you look at Tolkien's world, he's really telling you that the, mi- the macro events, the huge events in history, are all predestined. He doesn't believe in macro free will. He believes in, uh, at least in this world, he believes that there's only small choices for men and elves and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, which is really fascinating to look at the way that things happen uh, throughout the Lord of the Rings and the whole Silmarillion. So um, this is really Tolkien the Catholic here, isn't it, with divine plan? Yeah. Divine planning. Uh, I just had a vision of uh, like the divine planning office, you know, (laughs) where there's uh, all these scribes working away, documenting (laughs) the the divine plan. It's like Santa's workshop. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Um, Yeah, it's it's curious that, you know, we as a species— um, you know, our brains are built to to find patterns and things. And um, yeah, for some people, knowing that there is a plan really creates a sense of peace and sort of tranquility in the world, which could seem random and, and chaotic in a lot of ways. Exactly. And there's a couple other themes I wanted to bring in. Mm-hmm. One is, all that you do in evil, I will turn to good. That's not the exact quote, but I right. wanted to make it plain Simple, here. Yeah, simplified it, yeah. Yeah, so, so that's something that he says to Melkor later in this, and we'll talk about that event, but is, is something where the divine plan includes good and evil, according to Tolkien. Uh-huh. You know, it's not just that, like, I think if you ask Tolkien about the real world, he'd say, Satan is not the originator of evil. God creates good and evil to give you a choice, to give you some kind of choice in life, which is a really interesting contrast with this divine plan, with this predestination, Mm -hmm. because there is a choice when it comes to your soul and what happens to your soul after death based on the choices you make, Mm -hmm. whereas there is not a choice as to who wins the great wars. So there's a quote in um, in this reading where Melkor goes out into the void, and then that's when he started to conceive thoughts of his own, unlike those of his brethren. And I thought that that was interesting, because that seems to be the source of Melkor's dissonance. And I don't know if, it, if we should talk about that more later, but that's what I'm starting to think of here. Like, okay, you, you're going to do this, but I'm going to actually turn all of that into good, no matter where the source is or why. Like, it's all part of my plan. Yeah, so again, going back to this alteration versus interpretation, there's another mm-hmm. way that Tolkien describes it in a different letter. I don't remember which letter it is, but he says, basically, there's a difference between making and creating. Making is just changing something or you know, adjusting the plan a little bit, uh, adjusting the creation a little bit, uh, helping with creation. It is not creating in the way of like the Aina Lindale being a creation, a creating act. And I think that Melkor, when he sees the void and when he feels this emptiness as I want to create, I want to be the one to make something. Right. And there is where he overreaches, which right. is something that Tolkien always feared. Right. Okay, one last theme, and this is really just an observation. And so, the flame imperishable, 
is something that comes up a bunch of times. Yeah. To me, that's the Holy Spirit. Okay. That is the Catholic Holy Spirit. You know, if you're if you're not Catholic, I'm not Catholic, so don't worry about it. But the Catholics, they have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is supposed to be within and without everything. You know, that's like the the aura part of God. <laughs> Metachlorines, anyone? Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> don't do that, David. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, so the flame imperishable to me is Tolkien's analog in this universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not an analogy. No, um, it's uh, it's the same thing. It's this is the thing that is keeping creation going and is within and without everything. So, just in front of that that last little bit I was talking about about Melkor, there's this line here. He had gone often alone into the void places, seeking the imperishable flame. So I found that really fascinating. Like, why is he out there looking for this thing? What is this thing? It seemed really interesting to me, this sort of... Um, and I think, doesn't Gandalf uh, talk about being a secret ser- a servant of the secret flame or something like that? I can't yeah. quite remember the, the, yeah. the thing. So Yeah, that, that's basically a reference to the same thing. And yeah, so you, you can interpret that a lot of ways. Was mm-hmm. Melkor sort of looking for this fulfillment, looking for this Holy Spirit so much that he missed it right in front of him. Right, right. All right. I just want to go over some of the quick vocabulary that we're going to need for this. So first off, we have Eru, also known as Iluvatar. I'm going to call him Eru in this one because Eru Arugula is a joke from the last podcast. (laughs) We're not taking it onto this one. It'll probably come up. Right. Uh, But I'm just going to call him Eru on this one. That means the one. Okay. That is the creator God. That's your big Abrahamic God. Right. He can do anything, but right. he's also pretty far removed here. So he's in this story a lot. He's not a ton in the rest of the Silmarillion. Then you have the Ainur. Now, those are the basically the angels. You know, they're the, they're the gods. They're the Greek pantheon. And we'll get into the specifics of who they are. I'm just going to introduce the named ones in this chapter today. Okay. So going further in the subdivision to the Valar, now you have three named people. So we have Melkor, who you're, who we're going to see is basically the Lucifer Satan of this. He's the one, he's the fallen angel. Uh, then you have Manwe, mm-hmm. who uh, is, is in charge of wind, we find out in this chapter. Okay. An heir. And then we have Umo, who's in charge of water. So those are the only three we get in this chapter, as far mm-hmm. as I could tell. And so that you don't have to remember their names a ton. We'll keep reminding you of them. but. Uh, it's good to start getting this vocab- vocabulary in. Got it. Okay. Then also we have the children of Iluvatar, who are elves and men. Right. Now, Melkor is described several times as being sort of the greatest of the Valar. So he's got a piece of all of the pieces of right uh, of Eru's mind, and right. so does Manwe. Mm-hmm. Oh, I didn't Basically, realize Mel- that. Okay. Melkor and Manwe both have. Uh, a share of each of the parts of Eru's mind, whereas the other Valar only get a single piece mm-hmm. of Eru's mind. Like, like one of them only gets to see like nature, and one of them gets to see, uh, you know, a different element. And so that that's the difference, really. Interesting, yeah. And and um, and that does something to to Melkor, which doesn't do to Manwe, because Manwe, right, kind of is. Uh, an important player, at least in the Second Age and and later. Oh, yeah, very important in the First Age, too. Right. Okay. So that's all our vocabulary. Okay. David, I think we have to take a quick break because we've given them a lot of vocabulary. Okay. (laughs) Let's take a quick break, and when we get back, we'll get into the actual recap of the chapter. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. And we're back. So, David, let's talk about what actually happens in the reading. 
Let's go. The first thing is there's Eru the One, right? Mm-hmm. In Arda, they call him a Luvatar. I'm taking a, a few bits of this quote. Okay. And he, as his first order of business, creates the Ainur, creates these demigods, angels, uh, who are going to assist him in the creation of everything else. It is a very unique idea for a Catholic man who is very deeply monotheistic to have this monotheistic God create delegates. Mm-hmm. What did you think about this? I didn't, you know, do a, a, a close textual analysis of uh, comparative religions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I just kind of took it uh, for what it was. I thought it interesting that um, you know, he, if he's the all powerful then what are the necessity of of all of these others like you know if he's self contained but yet somehow he he needs something as well or eru needs something as well and so he creates uh this um orchestra uh all these different aspects of his mind and to you know to to create the world yeah i don't know i didn't really have any any deeper thought i was just sort of taking it at face value so there's this Catholic Franciscan priest who I've read a book by because he's just a really fascinating guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a very open guy. He's he's not conservative at all about his religion. Mm-hmm. Um, but he talks about why he likes the idea of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, he says, it is because God is relational from the beginning. Mm-hmm. God is relationship and teaches you how to love. Now, again, I'm not a Catholic. I don't subscribe to these beliefs necessarily. Um, But Tolkien here, I think, is saying Eru didn't need all these people. He didn't need all these extra powers. He's creating this relational arena Mm -hmm. where people can choose to do good and evil. Mm -hmm. Melkor could have chosen to do good, right? and he didn't. And he could have been the greatest of the Valar. And Eru's gift is that he gives them free will. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's that's my uh, my two cents about Tolkien's Catholicism poking through. Okay. <laughs> it does read very angelic, and you know it. Uh, you know, having grown up in within a, a Christian faith myself, I mean, it it all r- tracks right. Even it, it's not even necessarily Catholic. It it's just sort of uh, Christianity writ large. God is on high. And there's all these angels who do stuff and they sing and, you know, they sort of structure and order the world in some way. And so that, it, to me, like, reading this for the first time, I guess it didn't occur any other way just because that kind of mythology, and I'm not saying mythology in a, I, I'm using it as just a, a way to, de- as a descriptor, that there's this, this, uh, 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 con- this construct, this uh, this ideological construct, that's probably wrong too. But anyway, the the point being that there's this structure that's laid out for you to just understand and to take. And so I guess I was just taking it um, as he wrote it. Very cool. Yes, mythology is a big thing in Tolkien. This mm-hmm. idea of myths having truth, right? Um, and and he even would refer to you know the creation story in the Bible and Jesus and things like that as true myths. So, again, myth is not something dismissive here. Okay, let's get into the meat of it. Now we have the music of the Ainur. So, here's a quote at the beginning. Never since have the Ainur made any music like to this music, though it has been said that a greater still shall be made before Iluvatar by the choirs of the Ainur and the children of Iluvatar after the end of days. So, this is really important here, is that Okay. This music will not be complete because it doesn't contain all the players. Mm. In the end, elves and men will have to sing along with the Ainur Mm -hmm. to have the true perfect creation after the end of the world. Okay. So it feels to me like there's a plan beyond the plan a little bit with this. Right, right. Like there's a meta plan. Right. So right away you're being told there is... An apocalypse. There is this, you know, Christian right. uh, Armageddon kind of thing. End of times. Yeah. 
and that there's going to be a world after that. So you're getting this promise of Eru. Mm -hmm. So next we have the Ainur being conducted by Eru. And during this, Melkor repeatedly sows discord. But every time he does that, Iluvatar arises with a different theme that corrects Melkor's discord. And something notable here is that he rises three times. Yes, I saw I noticed the three. <laughs> right, right. The Trinitarian three. Yeah, You're going to see a lot yeah. of threes. Uh, threes are big in, in Christian theology. They are, and I think, but they're big in general as well. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's structural things that are threes. There are uh, psychological things that are threes. So there's a, there's a lot of threeness, I think, in the world, regardless of, of specific culture. Um, it's a strong number, you know? Sure, but if if you're reading Tolkien and something can be Catholic, it probably is. Right, yeah, of course, of <laughs> course, absolutely. But I mean, I, I think it goes to the larger truth, you know, to, pointing to some larger truths, you know, that, that all humans experience. Right, exactly. No, I think that's true. Very cool. Okay, so on the third theme, the theme of the children of Iluvatar, the music stops. Then Iluvatar spoke and he said, Mighty are the Ainur, and mightiest among them is Melkor. But that he may know, and all the Ainur, that I am Iluvatar. Those things that ye have sung, I will show them forth, that ye may see what ye have done. And though Melkor shall see that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempteth this shall prove but mine instrument in the devising of all things more wonderful, which he himself hath not imagined. Lots of yees in there. <laughs> let's let's just be clear at first. Yeah. This is not the type of writing for the rest of the Silmarillion. Mm, okay. So do not panic if this was very dense for you. Tolkien is trying to mimic a style here, right? He's mm -hmm. trying to make this sound like the King James Bible. Got it. Okay. He does not. He's not going to do this when he's talking about elves. He's doing this more so uh, during the creation story to really evoke that type of prose. Right, the voicing of a character, and this character being the Almighty. Yeah, he's literally God, so he's going to talk like he's in the King James Bible, because to, you know, to right. Tolkien, that's, that's the Catholic Bible. Well, and that's what's going to be able, that's, that's his audience, right? Those are going to be right. people who have been educated uh, in and around the church. And so to, I, I can see how, as a literary device, that would function well. Uh, because people are going to code that, oh, this is how God talks. Okay, and the important part there is that Eru is basically saying, Milkor, you can be the greatest ever, mm. but you're not going to be because you keep sowing discord. Mm -hmm. And all that you did came from me anyway, mm -hmm. and I'm going to turn it to good. I'm going to make it something beautiful, even if you think it will be ugly. Right. And that is something that is core to the whole story of Middle-earth, right. including the Lord of the Rings, including The Hobbit, is something evil will be turned into good. Right. Well, and we look, I mean, that's uh, clearly typified in, uh, at least with Gollum, right? Because it was Gollum that destro ultimately destroyed the ring. Right, right. Because he wanted to seize it for himself. Right. The selfishness was turned to good. Right, exactly. So that is something that's the core. I would keep that in your mind going forward. Cool. So he here we go further in. Each of the Ainur has incomplete knowledge of their part in the music. Remember, we talked about this. Mm -hmm. They have a share of the knowledge of Eru, but they don't have the whole thing, except for Manwe and Melkor. And even with them, some things remain hidden, right. such as details on the children of Iluvatar, of elves and men. Mm-hmm. Why I don't know if this is the time to talk about it this now, but there's I don't think there's anything written about why Eru was keeping the creation of elves and men quote unquote secret from the Ainur. Oh, it's a free will thing. Okay. Yeah. 
There's a note we discussed this actually in the in the elves chapter of the Second Age. Okay, as, uh, it was a long time ago. <laughs> he, yeah, I know. He he didn't want the Valar to go and say, "All right, let's go shepherd them from the time they wake up." Right. Let's go make sure that they act our way. No, right. he wanted elves to create their own culture, and they did. I mean, the elves created language, mm-hmm. something that the Valar had never conceived of. Mm-hmm. Got it. Right. So he wanted them to to be. Because otherwise the Ainur would be like, oh, cool, God's, God's creation, you know, junior creation, let's go play with them and let's help right. them. And yeah, right. then they would uh, well, kind of like a, a strangely, a perversely Star Trekian uh, sort of, uh, uh, what's the primary, prime directive, the prime directive, right? <laughs> Leave them alone, yeah. let them develop on their own until they get to a particular point and then we can interact with him. Right, exactly. So yeah, so that's, that's all there is. So Umo is the first Vala that we're introduced to. Again, Vala is the singular of Valar. Okay. So there's some weird singular plural things in Tolkien. Sometimes when a word ends in R, you want to take off the R to make it plural. Okay. And he's in charge of water. The elves say that the music of the Ainur is still in water. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's why it's so holy there. And that's why elves have this sea longing, you know? Right, okay. uh, That we've talked about in the Rings of Power coverage. Right. Now, Manway is the second Vala that we're introduced to in charge of air, mm-hmm. and the two team up basically immediately. They are the chief servants of Eru going okay. forward. Right. Those are his dudes. Right, exactly. Again, Manway has the whole picture of what's in Eru's mind, just like Melkor does. Right. So Eru then basically turns the music, because they didn't know the reason for it, but he turns the music mm-hmm. into a vision of creation mm-hmm. or the Einar. Mm-hmm. And they first they see darkness for the first time ever, mm. but they also see the history of the world. Mm. It's interesting that because uh, we think of for us as sight based creatures, right? You know, vision is a primary sense, and so for us to you know to see darkness, to become aware of darkness, I guess the Valar weren't sight based in that same way. So it's it's a it's a funny concept. To think about that they're suddenly aware of something called darkness, the absence of light. Right, right. Really interesting. Um, Do you want to read this next quote as well? Therefore I say, Ea, let these things be. Right, exactly. Ea, let these things be. So that's why creation is called Ea. Uh-huh. And so he turns this, uh, this vision into a reality. However... It is not complete when they get there, and we'll get there. So Eru gives the Ainur the option to go into this Ea, into this creation, Mm -hmm. and do the work of creating the world. But those who went to it would be bound for it for all time. Mm. They have to own this. You know, they have to be willing to bind their power to this world Mm -hmm. so that they're not going to be like, well, it went bad. Melkor messed everything up, so we're just going to leave. What did you think about... Eru basically giving ownership of the world to the Valar. Well, I guess, you know, they, they got skin in the game. They've got responsibility. I mean, as a parent, there's some things that sort of vibe with me there. Like, you know, we just got a cat because our daughter was, you know, wanting one for a long time. She wants to love and take care of something. Um, and we're like, okay, but that means something. That means feeding, cleaning the litter box, you know, t- taking taking on all these responsibilities. And when you have the responsibility of another life in your hands, you can't change your mind halfway through. I mean, it's the same like both of us being parents. It's like, ah, you know, five, six years, I'm good. I'm not going to do this anymore. (laughs) No, man, you got to be in and you got to be in all the way. There is no going back. And that's actually interesting from a, a point of transformation, because once that life, once you become responsible for that life, that transforms you, right? That changes your perspectives and the story that you tell yourself of who you are and what's important to you. And so, yeah, I can see why Tolkien on one side and then, you know, Eru on the other is like, yo, you want to get in this game, that's it. Once you're in, you're in, right? Because you can't you can't play around with this creation, with this life force anymore. You've got to be serious. You know, you've got to, it's your responsibility. Yeah. He's not going to let the shepherd lead the flock right. once they have uh, the, the children there. Very good Christian reference for you. <laughs> there, <laughs> shepherds and flocks. Listen, I'll be here. I'll all right. be here doing all the Catholic <laughs> references for you. So those who go down into the world are named the Valar, which means the powers of the world. Right. So Ainur to Valar. 
Right. Right. So they, they, again, the Ainur are the big set. Mm-hmm. Then we have a subset called the Valar, which are the ones who go into the world with the responsibility to make it. Now, others will be sent down later, but we'll get into that when we get there. So they are the powers of the world. We have three named here, Manwe, Ulmo, and Melkor, and the other Valar also go into Ea. Melkor, it's noted, convinces himself and everyone else that he means to go to create and not to destroy. Mm -hmm. Melkor is really a tragic figure here. Mm -hmm. Some people have argued that Melkor is the main character of the Silmarillion. Interesting. I could see that. I mean, I haven't read that much of the Silmarillion, but um, I could see that his effect on the world is so critical, really, to everything, right? He, his dissonance. Um, didn't we get a feedback email from somebody, too, about music and dissonance? And it's, it's you're the musician here. Yeah, back in the day. Yeah. Back in the day in the, in the Rings of Power season, we had a feedback there. Right. And how dissonance is, dissonance can be pretty. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but then I sort of said, dissonance is pretty, but discord is not. Mm-hmm. Dissonance is tension between mm-hmm. two notes. Discord is like cacophony to me. You know, that's like chaos. Right. So, so that would be like, you know, a marching band playing out of tune. You know, just reading this about Melkor here, it just, like, when he was running around in the void looking for the flame, like, it's, like, it's almost like he went a little crazy <laughs> out yeah. there in deep space. You don't know what I've seen. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, that there is something there. And then he got jealous because he wanted to be, uh, well, there's another line here, something about, um, and he wished, upon, wished himself to have subjects and servants and to be called Lord and to be the master over other wills. I thought that was a really interesting line right there. Master over other wills. Right. He wants to take away free will from others. Mm. Whereas Eru is giving you free will within the, the substance of creation, right? Uh, like you, you're issuing forth from me, like you wouldn't be without me, but within me, you have free choice. Exactly. And even Melkor has the benefit of that, but he won't pass it on. Right. Okay, so one more point. The Valar go into Ea. Yeah. And they find nothingness. Mm. So from scratch, other than the flame imperishable that Eru puts in the center of the world, they have to create Arda, which is the world, um, and they have, to, they have to prepare everything for the children of Iluvatar. Now, throughout this process, Melkor just keeps destroying everything. They, he keeps marring everything. And the Valar have to keep rebuilding. And through this, basically, the world is shaped into not really a perfect shape, but into one that has all of the will of Eru Iluvatar, something that could not have been made perhaps intentionally by the Valar, but was still the result of the music. It makes me think of um, watching my daughter when she was younger, and I I see this among other kids too, I think this is a common thing, Um, is like if I built like something in blocks, she'd knock it down. (laughs) She was just like, you know, nope, you just gotta, I just gotta destroy that thing. And it's all, I mean, in that case, in that instance, in child development and child psychology, I'm sure there's people who could respond to this. There are, there's something about, you know, kids uh, affecting their will on the world. And so, and I think we've probably all seen other, you know, kids out on the playground who, who go around and, you know, want to stick a stick in, in everybody else's, you know, pies rather than to to play and create. So it's reading this, it's interesting to think about, well, here's this big evil guy. But actually, if you look back, those roots are, are well within our human experience yeah. of, of seeing people who would rather create than destroy, or destroy rather than create. Sorry, right. I had that flipped around. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think this is a really great place-setting passage for the whole Silmarillion. Uh, It's really Mm -hmm. fascinating to see this guy basically try to create this Bible. And something that I didn't say up front that I think is really important to this context is that the whole Silmarillion is supposed to be these elvish annals. They're supposed to be elvish histories. And so this account is secondhand. This account is supposed to be what the Valar told the elves that recorded this. Mm. The rest of it has at least some firsthand accounts because you have elves actually writing their own conflicts. Uh, but this is something that really they've heard about because they didn't exist yet. 
Interesting. It's this whole like in-world history. <laughs> exactly. And mythology within the world. It's like creation within creation within creation kind of stuff. It's wild to like conceive of that and write it out and structure it so that it all lines up. So, you know, years later, as we're analyzing it, like all those details that he sweated, like I think you mentioned one time about like he had to rewrite huge sections because on this date, this thing happened in the moon phase. On that date, these don't right. line up. So I got to fix everything. Like for this world that he's creating, for us to be able to have a kind of verisimilitude, you know, this secondary world, he really did have to sweat these details. Yeah. Yeah. No, he really did. This has been a fascinating reading. I think we should get to listener feedback. Okay. Sounds good. We just have one. It's from E Hoop, a repeat. E Hoop. A repeat. Our boy e. uh, uh, feedbacker uh, who for, who used to give us uh, <laughs> a repeat feedbacker <laughs> a repeat feedbacker who uh, used to hang out with us for the rings of power welcome back e hoop super excited for your series especially as i'll be doing the sill with a reading group next year so angles and illuminations will be valued worth noting a typical tolkien lift from scandinavian tradition iluvatar vatar father translates as all father a title shared with odin I'd recommend that anyone who wanted a useful Middle-Earthopedia pick up a copy of Robert Foster's Complete Guide to Middle-Earth. Tyler's Tolkien Companion is also good. I've had an early 80s edition of Foster since, well, the 80s. It's a pretty comprehensive dictionary covering everything before Lost Tales, especially useful for Silmarillion, and all other multi-form names. It also helps relate those names to other books. I've not used those books. I, I've generally just used the direct stuff from, usually the stuff from Christopher, um, uh -huh. from Humphrey Carpenter, um, and, and of course the stuff from Tolkien himself. But uh, yeah, I have not ventured out into third-party books, so I'll definitely check these out. Thank you. We, uh, for our Wheel of Time coverage that will someday come when Amazon decides to give us a release date, we just had a conversation with the author of, uh, what's the title of that book again? Origins of the Wheel of Time. Right. Michael Livingston. And we did an interview with him, which hopefully will be airing soon. But these kinds of materials make me think of that book by Livingston. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Livingston's work also has a lot of uh, Christopher in it. But yeah, no, I've, uh, I've, I'm looking forward to checking these out when I have a minute. E, we're going to save the rest of your email for a future chapter as they, as they come along, but I'm going to keep this in the outline so that we can get to it when it comes across. Uh, the next reading, by the way, uh, let's talk about this, is the next reading is going to be the Valaquenta. Again, it's not that long, uh, but I think it will be good to, to get an idea of what the Valar were doing before the elves came to Middle-earth and before the Silmarillion proper, as Tolkien called it, starts. So what is the Valen? Sorry, say that again. The Valaquenta. The Valaquenta. It sounds like um uh should be next to the Comfort Inn down the <laughs> road. Sorry, I apologize. That's that's rude of me. But anyway, the Valaquenta. I can't. I can't even say it. Valaquenta. Is this Valaquenta? What is the Valaquenta? The Valaquenta is basically the doings of the Valar before the coming of the Elves. Okay. So we're going to talk about um. The, the lamps that we've mentioned uh -huh. in the Second Age podcast. Oh, yeah, cool. Uh, we're going to talk about the marring of Middle-earth. We're going to talk about where the Valar were at first, where they had to go, why they had to go, etc. Where are we going to find that in the book? What should we be looking at from, from a page-by-page page standpoint here? Well, I don't want to give page numbers because everyone's going to be different. Yeah, of course. But of course. it's literally the second chapter. It's right after the Ina so okay. we're not always going to do a chapter. A lot of the time we're going to break it up, but mm -hmm. we're still in the very beginning where things are pretty short. And so we're not going to break this up right now. So again, in a month from now, towards the end of December, we're going to have the Valaquenta podcast out. You're always welcome to chat with us on the Discord in the Tolkien channel. There will be a thread for this specific reading for the Ina Lay up by the time that you hear this podcast. So join us there if you're not. You can send feedback to LOTR at thelorehounds.com. That's Lord of the Rings, basically, at thelorehounds.com. And John, I think what we might do, I'm going to jump in here too. What we should do, you've got, a, a, what, 12 uh, things that we're going to be breaking down over the Silmarillion story? Should we oh, well, put that in the show notes? No, that's, that's just the first year. <laughs> oh dear lord <laughs> listen we got we got we probably have like two or three years worth of content so we got stuff to do all right 
So we should be putting probably the next um, couple of um, stories that we'll be covering in the show notes progressively, right? Yep. Yep. We'll keep you posted on that. Okay. That sounds good. Yeah. Because I'm sure it'll help people to orient when they're, you know, what should I be reading next and when when should I get it done by, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. We'll, we'll post a schedule in, in the show notes. Um, again, we're doing Andor on Saturday. We got a couple episodes of that left. We've got uh, The White Lotus. Uh, already out now. You can check out the latest episode just came out yesterday and uh, doing that every Wednesday. We've got more Star Wars coming in December. Uh, We've got some Wheel of Time stuff coming. So we're always here on the Lorehounds feed. Uh, You're welcome to join us on other shows. I want to plug, uh, we're going to talk to Maester Anthony from the House of the Dragon coverage at Bald Move. He has a podcast, Devil Dragon, and he also is doing big book read-alongs. And he's uh, he's got uh, Clash of Kings, um, which they're going to be reading along right now. We're actually going to show up on one of those read-alongs with him. We've got a chapter. We'll probably jump in with him sometime in, around in January. But for Andor, we're going to have him on our podcast because uh, he's got some thoughts. He's got some hot takes that he wants to share with us. Uh, about uh, one of the most excellent, possibly, series of television ever, maybe? I don't know. Some people think that. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. All right, David. Again, y'all can get this on Patreon uh, early and ad-free if you'd like. Shout out to patron loremaster Samartian for your support. Uh, you get a You get a shout out if you're in that tier. Well, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next month for The Silmarillion and hopefully sooner on another show. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.